Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Hugh Drummond joins me for 321 Go. Then, John Cahill and Jen Crouchen interview former chairman of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, Congressman Nick Rahal. And last up, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, and welcome to 321 Go. Cayenne Cosmo is out this week, so joining me is Hugh Drummond. Hello, Hugh. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, pretty good. We love to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining I like being on it, and I feel I get a little bit better each time I'm on it. <laughs> and now we can see each other. Yeah, that's right. This is a whole new world we're living in. Um, so it would not be a conversation with you if we did not talk about the weather. The weather. We're having some wild, wild weather in the country the last week plus, particularly beyond freezing temperatures, snow and ice in Texas, a state that is ill-prepared for this kind of weather. Um, But you are a bit of a weather aficionado, if you will. So let's talk. Let's talk about it. They're cold. They're cold in Texas. They're colder than you guys are in Boston. Yeah, well, we're we're going to get some snow here. Um, we're recording on Thursday. We're going to get snow, I, I think, starting tonight. Um, a long duration storm, but you know, I think the the big thing that jumped out at me is, uh, as a New England resident, you know, most houses up here are were constructed for the snow. You know, we we have fireplaces or we have. Uh, you know, sufficient plows. We have um, just pipe uh, insulation. Yeah, you know, we have a culture that that's very accustomed to it. And uh, to see what's happened in Texas this week has been—I mean, it, it's very upsetting. It's horrible for for all of those that are suffering without power. Um, in some cases, without uh, they have to boil their water. Um, but you know, a lot of that is this is a state. Texas is a state where. Um, they rely a lot on uh, electricity. So uh, if, if your house is heated with electric heaters, when the power goes out, you're out of luck. And, um, you know, obviously there there's greater infrastructure issues that they're dealing with. But but what it comes down to is, is simply I, I think we are a lot more accustomed to cold, snowy weather up here and uh, are just better prepared. So um, can you, for people who may not understand, can you talk through a little bit of these crazy weather phenomenons happening throughout the country? Well, you know, um, it is clearly, I mean, my view on it is, is that we have global warming and climate change and but now um, we have a president who believes in it. So that's and, exciting. And we do. We do. Did you know that, uh, have you seen the story related to the Texas weather about the sea turtles? No. 3,500 sea turtles ha- had to be rescued. Um, sea turtles, appar- apparently, they fall victim to something called cold stun. And and that's when their body temperatures fall so low that they lose their ability to swim, to eat, um, or even to kind of put their heads above water. So um, this week, um, about 3,500 sea turtles were, were rescued um, or else they would have drowned. So kind of sad. But yeah, essentially, uh, you know, climate change is, um, in my view and in a view of many scientists and many people in the um, 
in government now um, is a large part of why we are seeing these wild weather events. And, you know, it's in the summer, you see uh, an uptick in, in hurricanes, not only the number, but the intensity. And um, we are seeing that now on the winter side of things too. The, you know, one thing to think about going forward, well, I guess two things. One, Texas, uh, the governor there uh, blamed it on, um, blamed the electric uh, failure on on wind energy. But, um, you know, the data shows that less than, I think it's less than 7% of Texas uh, electricity is generated by wind. And uh, the majority of it is still um, uh, natural gas, fossil fuels, and the natural gas lines froze. Um, as part of this storm, so really, you know, create a create havoc for them. But it is it is a warning for uh, grid systems throughout the country. You know, as we as we um, continue to feel increasing effects of climate change, um, the electric grids are going to be uh, pressured even more. I mean, right now they know that um, in summer months especially in the northeast or or out west summer months there's there's a lot of pressure on the grids and in some states they will do rolling blackouts to help manage uh, manage grid um, power in california yeah exactly um, in uh, new england um, the grid will occasionally um, you know there'll be a news story about hey in the, you know coming days there's going to be uh, a heat wave and, you know, just be mindful of when the grid is most um, pressured. Um, you know, there's times of day when there's a greater pull on energy or greater demand for energy. Um, but, you know, I think we are now, we've come to a point where this is not the kind of an emergency occurrence. This is becoming a regular occurrence. And that's that's a different pressure that the uh, that government and energy providers and uh, and people like you and me have to contend with. Yeah, and you know, just to throw it in there too, we saw the response. You know, California obviously had a really difficult time with with wildfires, uh, among other things, and um, responses from members of Congress that were not so kind, not so respectful, not so considerate or understanding, um, are now in a very similar situation and a little bit of egg on the face of, oh, now it's me. Mm -hmm. And what do you do? Um, mm -hmm. And as we continue, you know, talking about climate change and global warming, um, no real state or region of the country is going to be without circumstances that bring them to a place where the weather is operating in a way that they are simply not accustomed or prepared for. That's right. No one, no one is immune. And, you know, the circumstances, uh, having this happen during a pandemic is, uh, is even, you know, just takes it over the top. I mean, you have you have a vaccine deployment underway. People can't get to um, their vaccine appointments when the roads are bad, when the weather's bad. The when the electricity is out, you risk uh, vaccine spoilage. Um, you know, so it, it just compounds everything. And uh, hopefully, you know, events like this will. Uh, make, as you mentioned, make more people um, look at climate change, uh, take it a little bit more seriously, because it is serious. So you mentioned vaccines. Uh, another thing that the 
<laughs> the weather is doing is slowing up vaccine delivery in certain parts of the country due to weather, uh, which a lot of states are contending with. But that brings us to our next topic, which is vaccines, misinformation, and the role social media particularly is playing in that. We've seen a lot of stories recently, um, the Washington Post this week, most recently talking about a lot of evangelical Christian sites that are spreading misinformation, but it's not just those sites. Um, social media, once again, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, particularly, I think, in recent months, because so many more people are online and finding their socialization and connection through social media, that it can be an incredibly powerful tool. And if used for good, that's great. But if not used for good, um, it can be a little bit scary. And there is a lot of misinformation being promoted on social media platforms by organizations, also just by individuals who amass followings for whatever reason um, and talk about a lot of this. And some of it's scary. I mean, I see some of it pop up in my feed being shared like on an Instagram story by people I know and think are very smart. Um, sharing information about some of these vaccines and outcomes that are just like, that's not the whole truth. Um, and the effect that that's having on populations as governors, the president, um, and people in leadership are trying to get more and more people vaccinated. I don't know, like how, how do we contend with that? Well, I mean, you, you've told part of the story here, but it's also foreign adversaries are in the mix here too, because yep, one absolutely. of the things that they want to do is um, uh, just, uh, you know, further any kind of conversation that amounts to, that, that causes distrust in, in our institutions and it just distrust in the truth. Um, so it has... Uh, global political implications as well. But, you know, I, I think, I, like you, I, I've read the, the stories in recent days about, uh, you know, the, some of the uh, content that's been circulating around uh, vaccine doubt. And it's, it's mind boggling to me, you know, just as a, um, a daily reader of the news, uh, you know, I'm not, highly educated, but I'm educated. And, you know, I, I have a wide circle of friends around the world. But to look at some of these, um, these groups that are pushing out these just mind boggling accusations about what the vaccine is, uh, the uh, bringing in religion to it, you know, mark of the beast, uh, a, a mask could be the mark of the beast. The vaccine could be the mark of the beast. I mean, it is such a stretch of my imagination to take that seriously, but it is a serious, serious issue because so many people are swayed by that kind of content. And, um, you know, I know social media companies uh, are, are stepping up to, to try to uh, remove content like that, uh, labeling it, uh, is misinformation, but, you know, enforcement on their end is slow. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes uh, too much is already out there. And, you know, I imagine it's hard to enforce too. I mean, even if you, you find a source, new sources pop up every day. Um, and, you know, this is in a way 
you know, I said this in the last segment too, it's my opinion, <laughs> but I think having come out of four years of being told on a daily basis not to believe uh, the news, to doubt institutions, to not trust uh, uh, science, um, you know, there are consequences to that that are, that are lasting. And that's partly what we're seeing here. Yeah, you know, so Facebook announced last week that they were widening their ban on misinformation in order to promote confidence in the vaccine. Um, arguably a different approach for them. Uh, in the past, they have been pretty slow to manage misinformation on Facebook. Uh, Zuckerberg famously you know, speaking before and testifying in Congress and saying that he didn't think it was his job to fact check. Um, that has certainly changed uh, I, I, really in the last year or two, but um, them stepping out here, I do think, you know, are these platforms really starting to realize that they, they were part of a very detrimental uh, process and breakdown of how information is shared, disseminated and understood? And, you know, perhaps still trying to pick up the pieces and saying like, okay, no, we, we have a role to play and a difference to make here. And we can either be on the side of good or the side of evil and maybe doing more is better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I yeah. Know I so. I, no, I, I, I agree. I, I think that um, they are, the, the, the companies are definitely uh, stepping up. Um, they need to step up more. It is a hard uh, task to take on, in my my view. Um, and it's a fine line. Right? It is a fine I mean, line, right? First Amendment is real, and, and right. I support it fully. Um, but how do you balance that? I I don't. Oof. Right, and you know the the other thing I see this on a hyper local level, where you know in cities and towns across the country, you can find pockets of people who are very um, engaged in the school issues. Should schools be open? Should they be, you know, full-time, part-time, hybrid, you know, whatever. And I, I look at the, the social media conversation or debate that goes on in, in my town. And it is interesting to see people pulling, um, you know, they can find sources for almost any fact or suggested fact that they want to put out there. And, so if, if you're a social media provider, I mean, who's to say that, uh, you know, I, I'm not talking about like, um, you know, strange uh, news sites. I'm, I'm talking about they could find viewpoints that are in um, mainstream or, you know, slightly biased uh, uh, news, news sites or uh, interest group organizations to push out their point of view. And it is a, I, I think what it, there's a lot of just self-policing that takes, uh, that needs to happen. You know, you and I, we work in, in PR and do a lot of crisis work. And um, sometimes when, um, I mean, it's not, it's not uncommon for us to have a client uh, that has a crisis. And one of the areas that is uh, hard to manage is the social conversation around a, cr a crisis. And sometimes the best solution is not to engage in the debate, but just to continue to push out facts. And um, 
you know, just kind of stick to what is truth versus untruth. And, um, you know, reset the narrative, own the narrative, own it. Yeah. So if you can believe it or not, we are about three weeks away from the one year anniversary of the governor declaring a state of emergency in Massachusetts, March 10th. Um, our last official day in the office was March 13th. It was a Friday, um, Friday the 13th, very ominous. And But the vaccine is intended to help us all get back to a life of quote unquote normal sooner rather than later. Um, and this morning, uh, Governor Baker participated in his annual Greater Boston uh, Chamber event. It is usually a very large breakfast attended by upwards of probably thousands of people. Um, very crowded. Obviously, that was not the case. He delivered it um, online this morning, which I have to say um, I rather enjoyed because I listened to it in my kitchen while making coffee and breakfast for my son. <laughs> but one of the things that uh, it's multitasking at its finest. Um, one of the things he, he spent some time talking about was the future, that the future is going to look different. We keep talking about a return to normal, but we don't know what that normal looks like anymore. Um, you know, whether it is returning to work, um, returning into offices, he says he will be on, you know, my guess is a Zoom of some sort and a screen full of people and of state employees. And he'll say, when this is all over, who's looking forward to coming back to work every day? in an office, no one raises their hand. Um, conversely, when he says, who wants to solely work from home and never come into an office, no one raises their hand either. Um, and that the overwhelming response is positive when he says, who wants to have the option to work from home, but know that they have a space if they need it, depending on meetings and what's going on, and that be the way that they work. And that is what everyone is supportive of. I don't think that is a surprise to anyone. I think that among our office, among friends, colleagues, those are the conversations we're all having. Looking forward to going back. Don't know that we ever really wanna go back five days a week again. Um, and, but then with that was travel and entertainment. Um, you know, obviously industries that have taken a very hard hit, but are very important to economies, particularly in a state and a city like ours uh, in Boston, and that businesses are not spending that kind of money. Um, and how do we fill that within the economy? So I just want to spend a couple minutes chatting about that very concept, which is we talk about this return to normal, but nothing's ever going to be the same again. So the future is going to be different, particularly in how we all interact with one another, what offices look like, commuting, um, you know, not just the MBTA, but transit systems around the country are, I'm sure, taking a step back and saying, wow, rush hour is no longer rush hour. Um, and, you know, real estate, where are people going to live if they don't have to get to the city every day or the capital city of their, their state? you no longer may need to feel like you need to live within a half hour to 40 minutes of the city for commuting time. Does that open up possibilities in other parts of the state? Does that drive real estate down? I mean, wow, like the options are endless. And I think we will be seeing sort of the ripple effect of this for years to come. And 
in good ways and bad ways, but ways that we are going to have to adapt and figure out what that new normal looks like and how to take advantage of the good and mitigate some of the negative, right? Yeah, I mean, um, you hit the nail on the head. It's 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 not a return to normal. It's a new normal, and it it is really undefined. Um, still, I mean, selfishly, I'm not going to commute into the city just to be on Zoom calls all day. You know, I mean, it, that doesn't make sense. It's it's a waste of everyone's time, and um, you know, the world has shifted. I think. Um, you know, we're going to see a shift in business travel being, you know, sure there'll be essential business travel, but there's not going to be the, the uh, level of non-essential travel that, that you saw before. And then what does that mean for um, the hospitality industry? You know, you think of the, uh, the big conference hotels and things like that. It's going to be slow to come back for them. I, and I think you're, you're right. This is years. It's not going to be a, um, a thing that happens within six months of, of herd immunity. Um, you know, we're not going to have probably global herd immunity until sometime next year. So um, on, a, on a daily basis, you know, I, I think of the, the, the life that my wife and I have with our kids. We, we still have hybrid school. Um, we, we both are consultants. So she has, a, she works full-time in an office at home. I work full-time in a workspace from home and we trade off on all of the duties of the house. We, we, um, the kids, uh, school schedule is different than it would have been in a normal school year. So there are days I have to go pick up. There are days I have to drop off the, um, there are, um, uh, and it, it is yet undetermined what that will be in the fall. Even if it's a return to school, will it be five days? Will it be the same hours? Will it be, um, you know, we just don't know. And, and that affects how the working family, working parent has to, um, has to uh, manage their life. Um, but I think what we'll see is uh, as the year goes on, we will see a gradual um you know, more and more people getting vaccinated. Um, we'll see a gradual dialing back or relaxation of some of the uh, uh, emergency public health uh, protocols, the, the restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we'll see them go down to zero. I think there will continue to be some. I, I don't see masks going away anytime soon. Um, but, you know, th there'll be places and, and groups of people that you can probably uh, eventually socialize with that um, where you don't have to have a mask on. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're looking at uh, a, a long road, uh, you know, 2021 being um, a lot of adjustment, uh, 2022 being kind of some stepping forward into a, uh, a new normal. And, you know, economically, what does that look like? Which businesses come back? What 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 new businesses start? Mm -hmm. And you know, then you get out to maybe twenty twenty three, and maybe then we're in a much better place. And you think of, um, you know, I'm a history buff, and I go back to like the nineteen eighteen flu pandemic, which um, killed you know fifty billion people plus around the world, six hundred 
50,000 plus in the United States. Um, 1918, uh, October of 1918 was the deadliest month in, in US history uh, due to that flu pandemic. Um, uh, I don't know if this one has surpassed it in terms of a month, maybe it has, but um, 1919 was followed by 1919 where the, the flu started to wind down. Um, soon enough, you got into the 1920s, which became the Roaring Twenties. So at some point, there is a uh, a major reset, and um, and I think we'll see a lot of growth. Yeah, I mean historically, if you look back, every generation or every other maybe um, has had moments, catastrophic moments uh, that have changed the path of life, I guess, as we know it, um, in a lot of ways, and I do think we are very much living in one. Um, and as I said, I think there's a lot of good to come with, with disruption and comes opportunity, uh, but there will be definitely a need to readjust and refocus because there are some areas that won't bounce back no matter what. Um, and how do you reallocate the, the tax dollars associated with those industries and businesses, um, employment numbers, you know, there's, there's a lot, a lot to be done but um come back soon and join us and we'll keep talking about it <laughs> uh, i would love to absolutely thank you all right goodbye that's it for 3g1 this week Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. I am Jen Crouch and I'm a senior director here at O'Neill and Associates. And I have the pleasure of being joined by my vice chairman, John Cahill, who heads up our federal relations practice and uh, former Congressman from West Virginia, Nick Rahal. Thank you all for joining. Happy to be with you, Jane. Great. Well, you all know John Cahill and I'm sure a lot of you have heard about Nick Rahal, but he served as the ranking member on House Transportation Infrastructure. And prior to that, was the chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee from 2007 to 2011. He was first elected in 1976, served 19 terms in the US House of Representatives. And I thought this was a fun fact, recognized as the youngest elected, longest serving member in the history of the house yeah. that's pretty good that's but true. your story didn't really start in 1976 i understand that you actually started as a staff assistant for then u.s senator robert bird is that correct that that's correct jen i worked uh, summer jobs from uh, college in washington the most memorable summer was the summer of 1969 when i was a mail carrier in the u.s senate and uh, I had the seniority row, so to speak, the fourth floor of what was then called the old Senate office building before the current names. And I had uh, some memorable names, uh, J.W. Fulbright, Hubert Humphrey, Fritz Hollings, Ted Kennedy. <laughs> I delivered his mail that summer. You may recall what happened that summer. Yeah. July of 1969. Well, some of us older people like John and I would. Uh, that was the uh, summer of Chappaquiddick, and I was uh, Senator Kennedy's mailman during that uh, period. And uh, it was something, I, I can't even repeat what all was written on the outside of the envelopes that were addressed to him 
Wow. But, uh, so anyway, fast forward uh, after graduation from college, Senator Byrd brought me back to DC where I served in the Democratic cloakroom, working for all the Democratic senators at that time. And that's where I first got to know Senator-elect Joe Biden, right mm -hmm. after uh, he was elected in November of 72. Mm -hmm. I drove Senator Robert Byrd up to Wilmington, Delaware for his wife's funeral. Oh, really? Tragic, tragic wreck. Uh, before he was sworn in. And uh, I'll never forget that. Senator Byrd and I were standing out in the cold rain on a November night, waiting to pay our respects. Senator-elect Biden at that time heard we were outside. He came outside and said, Senator, don't you and Nick wait out here in the rain? Come in ahead of everybody. Senator Byrd said, that's all right, Senator. We'll wait out here in line like everybody else. Yep. And uh, we did. And Senator Biden has never forgotten that uh, since that day. And when he came to the House, or the Senate rather, uh, I was in a Democratic cloakroom and I was his go-to man in the Democratic cloakroom because he knew my closeness with Senator Byrd. He would call me every morning, early, early on my special line, wanting to know when the first vote of the day was because Senator Byrd would tell me. So he could stay and have breakfast with his kids in Wilmington and, and stay as long as he could before catching a train down to uh, Amtrak down to DC for the first vote of the day. Mid-afternoon, he'd call me every mid-afternoon, wanting to know when the last vote of the day was so he could catch Amtrak back to Wilmington and have dinner with his kids. Yep. That went on during the early part of his career in the US Senate and he never forgot it. He told a joke about it on the campaign trail when he came into West Virginia campaigning several times. Awesome. So, uh, it was quite a day, a lot different today though than back then, but uh, that was my history before being elected to the House of Representatives. Your, your education. Yes, <laughs> was it ever. <laughs> and so, so, John, when did you cross paths with uh, the congressman? I, I think in a hit or miss way in the early 80s, I had worked for Speaker O'Neill uh, in the late 70s and then went out and, and took on, talk about infrastructure, took on representing the Massachusetts Port Authority in terms of all their aviation uh, and seaport issues. And then the next thing you knew, I had the Transit Authority calling. And then the next thing I had the Mass Water Resources Authority calling. And that was, that was about, um, uh, Nick will remember this, that was about the cleanup of Boston Harbor, which was a pretty contentious financial issue in the mid 80s, if you recall, Nick. Yes, it was. You know, we needed desperately to get some help from the feds. And the only way to do it was to go through uh, the Clean Water Act, which meant to go through the uh, what was then the uh, Public Works Committee, and um, and so that so we had overlapping things, I suppose you could say, and then um, all that stuff occurred in the '80s with the Big Dig, and with the water resources uh, stuff and commitments made uh, to to the Transit Authority because of the Big Dig, you know it. it if you're going to build a highway project like that, you have to do some some uh, uh, outreach financially to transit entities, and so we had to do that. So Nick, of course, was on the committee and was growing in seniority, you know, just every two years there, just moving along and moving up. And um, I'd say it was probably 1990 or something like that that we connected. And um, what, what you know, one thing is you know is that one reason we connected is that that I was asked to help out with the, uh, what was then the Trenorvano project, when it was just a concept in Puerto Rico and San Juan. 
it was, it was a concept, but it was a very well-founded concept. And so I went to uh, uh, Mr. Rahal and I said, here's, here's our dilemma here. We, we, we're pursuing uh, federal funding for a portion of this uh, project. Uh, and as you know, Puerto Rico is not a state. They have no voting members in the Congress at all. Uh, they have some nice folks. Remember Basilo Romero, Nick? Yes, I do. Yeah, he was yes, there. He was, he was a good guy. He was there for a while as, as the commissioner, former governor, but they had no vote. And uh, so I guess we put our heads together, Nick, is what we did. And uh, you were doing the National Highway System Bill, I believe, which uh, had a lot of different moving parts. And uh, Nick was kind enough to tee up Urbano as an eligible recipient of federal uh, money. And that really got it going. And, uh, and then later when uh, Nick was doing a much larger bill out of uh, the Highway the Service Transportation Subcommittee, um, that's when we went full bloom into uh, funding Urbano. And I have to tell you, the other thing that Nick did is he supported statehood for the Commonwealth. Overtly, overtly. Yep. Uh, that came under my tra uh, natural resources committee where I was a strong supporter of statehood. Yep. Uh, but I recall the Tran Obano project very well, John, and, and all the work that O'Neill and Associates did on that. Uh, Carlos Pescara, who was uh, yeah. transportation secretary, I still have pictures of our trips to San Juan. Uh, yeah. I have pictures of Big Dig project too, my personal <laughs> visits to that project with Tip O'Neill. Yeah. And uh, that was when he first put the strong arm, arm on me. <laughs> he was my first speaker in uh, 1977. And uh, that was very dear to him. And uh, I was on transportation infrastructure. He put me there and he expected my support for the Big Dig project and I did. <laughs> And I uh, have pictures of it, and I'm going through a lot of my archives as we speak, and have run across pictures of that project. And wow. and you you mentioned the transportation bill. You know, back in those days, uh, we baptized the word intermodalism. That became the buzzword of infrastructure. Uh, early, I think it was early in the '80s when uh, Bob Rowe was chairman of the committee, Jim Howard, yeah. Norm Mineta. Yeah. And, uh, our surface transportation bills, all oh, for many years thereafter, always had the word intermodal in it yeah. somewhere. Ice-T, the Intermodal Ice Surface Transportation Efficiency Act, T-21, uh, the Transportation Efficiency Act. Uh, uh, intermodal was in there somewhere. That became the buzzword of transportation yeah. throughout the 80s and, and 90s. And uh, now we just take it for granted as much as we do a, a highway somewhere. But intermodalism changed uh, policy in this country, changed the way we move goods around this country and a more efficient on-time delivery. And it involved uh, all the modes of transportation, railroads, truckers, uh, and uh, it truly has, has uh, paved the way, <laughs> excuse the pun, for a more efficient transportation policy in this country today. Intermodal. Wow. Now I think we say multimodal like it's no big deal, right? Multimodal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. But I know with interest today, uh, the revival of serious efforts to reinstate earmarks 
those were a, oh, that was the bread and butter of every transportation bill we did in yeah. my years on TNI. I mean, earmarks were literally the engine that drove many bills to final passage in the House of Representatives. I can recall we used to pass transportation bills like 400 to 10 or 12. Uh, and those 10 or 12 in opposition would be like John Boehner, who would get up and say he was against pork. But who would be in the first line to get first in line to get pork whenever it was being handed out? <laughs> that was John. <laughs> yeah, it was always in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, and then, of course, under President Obama, earmarks were obliterated, uh, done away with, I guess. And uh, now there's uh, talk about reviving it. Yeah, yeah and I, what's that? No, go ahead. Yeah, I've always been a strong believer in earmarks. A uh, very strong believer. I, I've supported him. Of course, I had Senator Robert Byrd to, <laughs> yeah. as chairman of the appropriations during a lot of my tenure in the House. And uh, it was uh, easy to be for earmarks when he was doing what he, bringing home what he was bringing home to West Virginia in the way of projects and federal uh, monies. But, uh, you know, if you do away with earmarks, in my opinion, you're, you're doing away with your constitutional responsibility as a member of the house, which is the power of the purse. And to my Tea Party friends, I, I bring that up every time. I say, well, you believe in the Constitution. The Constitution gives the power of the purse to Congress. If we do not have earmarks, we're giving that power away to the executive branch. Uh, regardless of who's president of the United States, he or she has the right then to spend that money. And do you think they know our district better than we know our district? I don't think so. And uh, earmarks can often be the spark that lights the fire for other forms of uh, payments to help a project along. Mm -hmm. It can be the spark that, that gets private foundations involved, that gets the private sector involved, that gets state and local governments involved. Uh, by, with that seed money known as earmark, it can be the, the start of many a worthwhile project uh, that can uh, be good for not only the people of the congressional district from whence it's sponsored, but for the nation as well. I used to always say, you know, to those people from Michigan uh, that want to get to Florida uh, the, and the Floridians that want to have Michigans come down, how do you think they're going to get down to Florida in their cars if they don't have good roads in West Virginia to travel over to get there? That's how they get to Florida from <laughs> Michigan and the Great Lakes states is through West Virginia. So, you know, if we have crummy roads, the Floridians are not going to get their tourists. Yeah, intermodal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I did see that it's been endorsed now, uh, Nick, uh, the reintroduction has been endorsed by Rosa DeLauro uh, as chair of appropriations. Very obviously, good. Obviously, the leadership is pretty positive about doing it. So, and the Senate, of course, is relatively silent as they've always been on earmarks until, yeah. until their turn comes. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and I have to tell, <laughs> if we have time, a real funny story on earmarks. Sure. Yeah. Don Young, my dear friend, now the Dean of the House of Representatives from the state of Alaska, Republican from the state of Alaska, who gets tagged with the infamous bridge to nowhere uh, that gives earmarks a bad name. Well, he was in my office late one night. We were in voting. His office was right across the hall from mine. Uh, he came in my back door 
uh, he went to my beverage closet that he knew where it was. I didn't know where it was. And <laughs> we had a few beverages. <laughs> and I had known that earlier that day, the Republican caucus in the House had a meeting and earmarks was on their agenda. And the debate was going pretty favorably. Some shocking people in the Republican caucus were speaking in favor of it. And right before they had, were going to have a vote, Don Young gets up and speaks in favor of it. Everybody just went silent and walked out of the room. There was no vote. Wow. So that night when Don was in my office, I told him what I heard going on. And I said, Don, I heard when you got up, the discussion stopped and it was going favorably until you got up and spoke. And he said, yeah, I'm for earmarks. And I said, I know that's the problem. You should have just kept your mouth shut and, <laughs> and kept quiet and we might have remarks reinstated today. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay, well, next time I won't say anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> next time be quiet, wow. He was, he was the reminder. He was the of reminder. The bridge nowhere, yeah. Nowhere. yeah. But you know, you know, as long as they're scrutinized, and God bless them, Jim Overstar put in a process when he chaired the TNI committee that really provided for scrutiny, public transparency, the project has to be on your website. You have to list everybody that's involved with it. It has to have the support of all the local groups, the Chamber of Commerce, the labor groups, everybody. Uh, you have to certify and sign in blood that you don't benefit from it personally or no supporter of yours, financial supporter of yours benefits personally. And as long as it's scrutinized like that, then, you know, the American people can decide well, they should uh, welcome it. And decide whether that project should go forward or not. In most part, they will be in favor of it. Sure. Oh, sure. definitely, definitely. And I think to your point, it really does help projects that otherwise can't get off the ground. And we've been missing that the last 10 plus years. And I think a lot, you know, there's a lot of grant programs out there, but some that just don't fit for the needs that entities have. There's just not federal funding or a program that exists. So earmarks are a wonderful way to, to exactly. jump that and to your point, get that other outside uh, support. So I think we're all eagerly waiting to see the process and embracing of that. And it's been, it's been too long and they get a bad rep and they're an excellent, uh, an excellent tool. Yeah, you, you know, the, the other thing, uh, folks, when, when they did away with the, when they did away with earmarks, yeah, they pointed to the bridge to nowhere and, and some other stuff, maybe excessive and not, not really transparent. But, but the thing is, they did away with earmarks to not-for-profit institutions. Mm. You know, all the colleges, all the universities, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it could, could be food banks, for that matter. Exactly. They all suffered. They all suffered. And, and no means to raise that money, you know, uh, or at least to start. Yeah. I mean, we used to do some of those things in planning and design to launch a project, right? Exactly. Because maybe the entity didn't have the million bucks or whatever it was to do planning and design. Well, once they got it, then they could go out and raise the money to do the construction. So yeah. they, they really did a disservice to a lot of people. Oh yeah. yeah, we had health clinics in West Virginia that suffered in rural areas of our nation that they have no access to the big hospitals in the mm -hmm. big cities and, and they rely upon those small rural health clinics and uh, they're mm -hmm. often funded by earmarks and they took a big hit. Still yeah. are. Still are, right. Still yeah. Are. yeah, yeah. And then, um, so Nick, I was going to say, I know Jen, was, Jen would do this anyway, but so 
tracing back all those years and the number of surface bills that you worked on and surface bills you actually you know produced, how do you see this current well, enormous uh, push for an enormous infrastructure bill? I mean, it's way beyond just surface, I suppose, isn't it? So, what what are your yeah. thoughts now on on the the country is in desperate need of a massive infrastructure bill. Uh, and there are so many segments of transportation uh, that are not getting what they need in any of these COVID bills that are going through the Congress as we speak. And they really need it in order to survive and in order for our country to uh, have an effective transportation policy. And, you know, I forgot the figures, but when you invest in infrastructure, you're creating jobs. When you create jobs, you're creating taxes that help reduce our deficit. Uh, and of course, we all know the big elephant in the room. How are we going to pay for it? Yep. Well, that's always the question. How are we going to pay for it? I remember being asked that question once uh, in the mid 90s or maybe latter 90s. And I said, well, all options ought to be on the table. Before I finished talking to the reporter, John Boehner sent out a press release. There goes tax and spend Ray Hall wanting to tax us to death. Again, liberal Democrats wanting to tax us. When all I said was all options ought to be on the table, which, yeah, it includes a gas tax. It includes revenue uh, enhancers. It includes public-private partnerships. It includes bonding. It includes tolling. It includes all the above. And then we're not going to have enough. Yeah. So uh, people are so afraid of that gas tax, yeah. which I don't believe has been raised since 1993, mm -hmm. not even for inflation, if I'm still correct. That's right. In, in my memory. <clears throat> uh, and we, we know that the highway trust fund is really, it's a trust fund for every dollar that goes in there and gas taxes that we pay, it ought to come back out in transportation, not go to deficit reduction, not go to anything else. It ought to come right back out of that trust fund for transportation related projects. And if you do that, in my opinion, the American people, if they see that their taxes are coming back into their area for transportation improvements, they could very well support a gas tax increase. West Virginia, West Virginia, my home state, uh, back a decade or so ago, raised the state gas tax twice. Wow. A rural, poor state like West Virginia. Uh, and here are these big states, uh, at least they used to, like California, have a constitutional amendment prohibiting a state gas tax increase. I don't know whether they still do or not. Uh, but if you're honest with the American people and you show them that this money's coming back to benefit their transportation needs, then, you know, you, you should not be so afraid of the gas tax increase. I saw that to your point, not just on the gas tax, but there are other sources of support. You would not necessarily have to rely solely on the gas tax. No. There are other sources of potential funding. I saw that even yesterday, just a separate issue, but the Secretary Buttigieg uh, said uh, in a very affirming way, we really need to take a look at 
doing this by, by debt. That is that money is so cheap right now, so inexpensive, that you could basically bond a good portion of the cost of this uh, investment, you know, string it out 20 years, 25 years, Mm -hmm. you'd, be, you'd make money, you know what I mean? By growth in the economy, sure. you'd be ahead of the game. So I think people need to think a little more creatively here. And if it takes four sources of funding, you know, four different sources, albeit, go, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Remember the late Jim Howard, chairman of TNI at one point, who had a proposal nickel for America? Yeah. Uh, which was a nickel increase in the federal gas tax uh, I think earlier, I'm not sure over what time period, but uh, he took the bull by the horns. Yeah, he, of course, he often took the bull by the horns, didn't he? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had the 50, he had the 55 mile an hour speed limit uh, in a justifiable kind of way for himself because there were issues between New Jersey and New York that would, uh, you know, come up about this, the, both the speed limit and other issues related to driving, if you will. But um, but I think that nickel, Nick, I think he was looking for 10 years of that or something. It was like, he that, wanted it to go up to 50 cents, right? Yeah. Yeah, right, or go up by that, 50 cents. You're right, you're right. I, I've forgotten, but now you're reminding me, that's correct, yeah. Man, oh man, people are like, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, we probably should have done it. Probably yeah, with, yeah, know? but but you're right, John. You know, the gas tax alone, we cannot rely upon any one revenue source. It has to be a combination of all the above. Yeah, all the above, and then we're not going to have enough. I mean, we are so far in the hole as far as our infrastructure that needs repair, bridges, God forbid, on the verge of falling down all over this country. Uh, potholes that people break axles in and go fish in in many states are so big. Uh, it's just it's just a shame uh, that when we stack up against other countries, especially even developing countries, uh, we lack far behind. I used to have those figures, but I don't recall them off the top of my head anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they're not Maybe. good either way, so don't worry about it. <laughs> no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. I mean, and and uh, I'm just hoping that even if they have to do this the hard way through reconciliation, again, I don't, you, you know, but we we have two bites of the apple, as you know, Nick, on reconciliation. Yeah. Because they didn't do one last year. If they have to do it that way, so be it. Just so be it. Yeah. You know? Totally agree. You know, it, it, we're overdue. Anyway, so Jen, yes. Well, no, I just thought we could uh, could end there, but I would love to reconnect with both of you maybe in a couple weeks. Certainly, we have upcoming on February 23rd. I think right now is the tentative date for the president's address to Congress. We'll know more about his infrastructure package then, and certainly, you know, we'll hopefully have a relief package done by March 14th, which is the deadline for a number of unemployment provisions that will be expiring. And uh, we'd love to continue the conversation with you, Congressman, as you look at all the ways to, how do you pay for it? What's included? Innovation, energy. I think everything's on the table and it's a um, you know, major piece of very expensive legislation, but needed. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, uh, if, if my friend Nick is up for it, I'm up for it. So let's do it. Great. We'll, we'll book it again. Sounds great. All right, we'll book it again. 
Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Enjoyed it. Talk soon. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. How are you? Two minutes with Cayenne and Tom. Two minutes with Tom. We've got video now. We're fancy. We Does anybody see the video or do they just hear no, us? They just hear us. Just see okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> How are you? We missed you last week, but now you're back. So we've got to check in. We haven't talked. Impeachment. Ted Cruz went to Cancun. Biden is what do you think? undoing all of uh, Trump's terrible policies. Lots happening. Lots happening in Washington, D.C. There's a lot happening. And things are getting are getting upsided, I think, and, and doing much, much better. Um, appointments are being made. The impeachment has come and gone. The focus now is on the Biden administration going forward. The cooperation between Congress and the White House going forward. So we're talking about the stimulus bill, we're talking about immigration, we're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about any number of things going forward that will be into the economy, job saving, helping out industries that need help, and moving forward with infrastructure repairs that really desperately need it. And, uh, and really shoring up our allies internationally um, and sort of putting us back on the map in a more positive manner as the leader that we have long been um, as the United States of America. Yeah. You know, reestablishing our old relationships is really very, very important and making sure that we're back on, on an even keel, especially as we watch, you know, um, the EU get breaking up a little bit, Brexit entering the picture. Trade is so very important. Dealing with Iran and reestablishing uh, groups of of, uh, of of treaties that were in place before Trump are really very important. Uh, John Kerry's work on global on global warming is really very important. Understanding the needs of our relationship between China and the United States going forward is really very important. The Taliban in the Middle East and the positioning it's taking and the positioning of the Biden administration is really very important. So for the Biden team it's it's all on board and and people are focused but he's done a great job he's done it in a very quiet calming balanced way and he's reaching out to members of both bodies in order to get you know his his uh, his policies in place so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it ted cruz i really don't want to talk about ted cruz i mean he did he did something that was uh, just crazy in the face of you know, a very bad, very cold, very ice-driven and snow-driven storm season down in Texas for the whole state, where half the state is frozen in place. Um, hotels, restaurants, businesses are closed down. The grid is, I guess, in pot up again. But here he was in Cancun with his family and feeling guilty about it a day into the trip and coming back. And he's being much maligned because of it. You know, who... Who knows? Well, and I think because of so many comments he's made in the past of holding people accountable, and we don't need to spend time talking about him. No. I just wanted it for fun. But it is, once again, and we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, very nice to just see the regular sort of doldrum and humming of Washington policy and politics as a bit per usual, mm -hmm. right? What we expect. Um, 
not a lot of drama. The impeachment proceedings were a bit dramatic, but I think ended exactly how we all thought they would end. Um, and what's nice is now that that's behind us, to your point earlier, it really is just about focusing on the Biden-Harris administration and rebuilding. That's exactly right. Getting people to work, making sure that people are taken care of through the COVID period. We're in the final stages now. And so we're down to phase two or phase three, depending on the state you're in for delivery of the COVID vaccine. You know, it's an important time. So, you know, it, it's an important time to understand what we've been through over the last year, but to stay vigilant and make sure that we keep distance and wear masks and clean hands and do all the things that we're supposed to do. Um, you know, it, it's, it's still pretty important, but we'll see our way through it. As the, as the incidences of COVID uh, infections is coming down, vaccines uh, are going up, hospitalizations are going down, people are feeling a little bit better about themselves, but it's still a time to, 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 to warrant being safe and sound and protective. Anyway, it's always good to talk to you. I love okay. Two Minutes with Diane and Tom. I love Two Minutes with Tom. And it's lovely to see you now, too. What a bonus. So Zencaster has come a long way. It has. Zencaster has adapted with the time. So kudos to them, too. <laughs> okay. Sign off. Love you. Sign off. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Diane. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.